the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, dude? Hey, man. I'm doing all right. What's up? We're, we're rolling. I just, I feel like it, you know, I, I was on a date and uh, I told her, or she, she, she said, hey, I saw that you had a podcast. Like, do you just switch into like podcast mode or like radio voice mode at different times? And I was like, all the time. Like whenever I do that intro, I cannot not say the second most handsome doctor in North America. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's kind of funny. We're on a roll here. Uh, this is episode 193. We're going to talk about fish oil today. Everyone's favorite supplement, maybe second favorite to like creatine or third favorite. You think multivitamins, like people, people like that better? Uh, man, I mean, I think that they all tend to kind of run in similar circles. Once people buy it. It's like conspiracy theories. Once you buy into one, you buy into all of them. That's right. Yeah, yeah, you have to. Yeah. So we're gonna talk about that today. Before we get into that, we have some announcements. Uh, first off, our whey protein, whey RX is back in stock it's on our website. Uh, it's the cleanest whey supplement on the market. That's why we uh, decided to make it. It's only got four ingredients. It's 80 calories. It's literally just whey protein isolate. That's it. Um, it is uh, CGMP certified. It is uh, batch tested to make sure that there's nothing else in it um, besides just the whey protein isolate. And it's available on our website. So you can get that now. Also, we have our live in-person events coming up. We've got Los Angeles coming up uh, in November. That's going to be fun. Also, that's like 10 year anniversary. You know, we've been doing this thing like, like barbell medicine has been a thing for 10 years. And it, like right around that time was when we kind of uh, started this thing. So yeah, Leah reminded me of that. She's like, you know, it's like going to be your 10 year anniversary. I'm like, really of what? <laughs> so yeah we're gonna have a little celebration uh in los angeles still have a few spots open for that not too many though i think uh, we're getting close to capacity um but yeah if you want to hang out with the barbell medicine crew uh for our health and performance seminar it's two-day seminar in los angeles we'd love to have you we're uh pain and rehab seminar is going to be in miami in january of 2023 so if you're looking to get uh uh the latest and greatest information in the pain and rehab uh, world are we're, we're back in action. So they will be in Miami in January. And then we will be back uh, in Atlanta at alpha strength and power in February of 2023 for another two day health and performance seminar. And then in New York in May of 2023 at CrossFit South Brooklyn. So if you want to hang out with us, you want to learn to lift, you want to get some coaching, you want to learn all the latest nuance in health and fitness, come see us at a seminar. Love to love to see you. All right. Without any further ado, let's hop into this week's podcast again. It is on fish oil. We're going to start this a little bit differently. We're going to start with a case presentation. And so if you're not in the medical field, usually case presentations are, you know, given to uh, sort of initiate some sort of teaching moment to learn a little bit about um, whatever's being discussed. And so this time we're going to uh, start out our podcast with a case presentation. So we have a 67-year-old woman who's being treated with blood thinners, and she normally visits her family practice clinic to have her international normalized ratio, that's called an INR, monitored. Her medical history includes recurrent transient ischemic attacks, aka mini-strokes, hypothyroidism, high cholesterol, osteopenia, and coronary heart disease. She's a lifelong non-smoker who does not drink alcohol, and she exercises regularly. She uh, is on warfarin a blood thinner, uh, which had been started at one milligram per day for the recurrent mini strokes two years prior to this visit. The physician uh, was treating her to a typical goal uh, between two and three. And this is a unitless measurement. It's basically just uh, designed to uh, prevent coagulation or clotting um, for people who are at high risk of, in this case, uh, mini strokes. Uh, 
Um, so in any case, she was stabilized on one milligrams per day for approximately eight months before she required a dosage increase to 1.5 milligrams, alternating with one milligram per day due to a low INR of 1.3. So they're really trying to keep her in that sweet spot of 2.0 to 3.0. The new regimen continued for approximately five months with INRs in the goal range. So basically, she's going to her primary care doctor for recurrent INR measurements just to make sure that she's within range. And that's pretty normal. Uh, during this five-month period, the patient also started taking 1,000 milligrams per day of fish oil without any significant change in her INR. Six months after the fish oil was first started, the patient's INR was high at 4.3. The patient's previous INR was 2.8, exactly one month earlier. She stated that her fish oil intake had increased to two pills per day during the previous week. The doses of her other drugs that she was receiving had not changed since the warfarin was initiated. Uh, at this point, her warfarin doses were adjusted, and she agreed to reduce her fish oil dosage from 2,000 back to 1,000 milligrams per day. Over the course of the next week, her warfarin dosages were adjusted, and she returned to her goal range INR. Fortunately, the patient did not develop any bleeding complications or any other problems due to the elevated INR. So, uh, Austin, I know you see this all the time when people present to the, you know, you get consulted on a, a possible admission to the hospital, their INR, maybe through the roof. What, what are you thinking about when somebody has an elevated INR and they, they present to the hospital? Yeah. I mean, this is just a, this is a situation that's fortunately becoming a little bit less common because we have better drugs nowadays compared to warfarin. I saw, I saw and used a ton more warfarin in residency and then some newer, fancier medicines come out that have made the management of blood thinners quite a bit easier. But that in particular is a drug that has so many drug drug interactions and interactions with supplements and interactions with diet and it's a profound pain uh, and so we are all welcoming uh, the demise of warfarin for most things um, except for a very few like limited remaining uses that it's probably going to have for the foreseeable future people with certain types of like artificial heart valves and things like that and um, and other uh, high risk clotting conditions uh, excluded uh, but this is a situation where Anytime I see somebody whose blood level of this is is off the charts abnormal, I'm talking to them about, you know, how they're taking their medicine, what new things have changed in their medication regimen, like certain antibiotics or certain supplements or things like that, that can throw levels off substantially. Um, and that's typically kind of where I'm, where I'm starting from in patients who are on this medicine. And so fish oil, as you know, is, is being brought up in this case in the past has been historically thought to have a bit of a, an effect to promote bleeding or to inhibit platelets, which are the little cells in our blood that help us to, to form blood clots. And so there's historically been this concern that, mit, that, war, that fish oil can potentially increase the risk of bleeding. I think that larger and larger scale kind of data sets and research have shown that to not be nearly as much of a concern as it used to be, if, if it is one at all. Of course, ruling that out entirely for the one specific patient in front of us is, is still very difficult to do, even despite all this kind of big picture data we have, because obviously like the the temporal sequence of this happening. She started taking it, she bumped up her dose. And then sure enough, like the next week it, it increased. Of course, are there other potential variables that could be at play? Certainly. And, and supplements are always something that I ask about in, in this kind of a, a situation. Um, but when that, with, with that said, when it comes to prescribing, you know, uh, uh, like prescription grade fish oil for certain patients, which we'll definitely get into in this episode and things like that, uh, bleeding risk is less and less of a, it's not really a, as much of a concern uh, uh, for me now when I'm thinking through this compared to, you know, where, how it used to be thought of. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like the, the overview of that. I remember uh, back in the CrossFit, CrossFit days, well, I mean, we're still in the CrossFit days. Obviously, they're a huge player in the fitness space. But when they were, they had like a fish oil calculator uh, somewhere on their website where it was like, you know, if you want 
to take the appropriate dosage of fish oil, like plug your weight in and whatever. And it, it spit out something, you know, insane, like 10 grams of fish oil a day. So, you know, 10 X the, the dose here, but then they would say, but Hey, look, if you're getting deployed or if you're going to like an active war zone or you may become injured, like don't take it because you might bleed out. That was the whole idea is like that it would have some sort of antiplatelet effect and it would reduce your ability to clot. And then you, you know, might receive some harm for, from that. And it's interesting that yeah, she was taking, you know, just a normal dose or INR was like regular, uh, for, for somebody that you were trying to like anticoagulate, you know, um, and then she doubled the dose and it, her INR spiked. I mean, I, I don't know that I would like run through the hospital screaming bloody murder. If somebody's INR is 4.3, but I'd be like, yeah, we probably need to <laughs> yeah. adjust this down. You know, it's not like a medical emergency. It's just one of those things where you're like, well, that's too high. We got to take you yeah. down. So, uh, I actually think in this case, what they did is they skipped a dose for her and then they re- like reduced her fish oil dose as well, yeah. just to kind of get her back to a therapeutic range. Um, but yeah, yeah not, not too hard to do. Just kind of an interesting case report that is difficult to prove causality with. But again, the temporal kind of relationship is pretty compelling. And we know that warfarin and stuff like that are super susceptible. So I think it's a you know big picture. Supplements are something that you know we'll, we'll probably discuss on their own, like the potential downsides, risks, harms of supplements in its, in its own kind of a, an episode. But particularly for patients who have multiple medical issues or on medications, things like that, um, you know, I see the downsides and harms of, of these kind of things happening all the time in the, yeah. <laughs> in the hospital. Obviously, a significant selection bias, a small subset of the population compared to like total supplement users out there, but definitely see it quite frequently. Yeah, I wonder with like the processing of the fish oil, like when it's, you know, how it's manufactured and capped, you know, like put into pills and stuff. Like, I don't know, maybe some St. John's wort was on the, the <laughs> conveyor belt beforehand yeah. or whatever. But I mean, yeah. I've seen INRs jump with people taking like grapefruit for example, it's like a potent inhibitor or whatever, but for another podcast, anyway, we just wanted to introduce the topic of fish oil. We're going to talk about it now. So first off, let's talk about what even is fish oil. So fish oil describes a particular type of lipid, uh, which is really just a fancy chemical term, meaning it is a biological compound that is insoluble in water. I know like every time that we'd have a chemistry term, Austin's thing is, yeah, it's just a chemistry term for, you know, uh, this particular type of, uh, molecule or, 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 or substance or whatever. So when you think about what a lipid is and what a lipid isn't Austin, like where's, where do you draw the line there? Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's probably the simplest way for, for folks to think about it who are not going to be, you know, uh, niche lipid scientists and things like that is does this dissolve in water or not? Because since our bodies are overwhelmingly water-based, that has significant implications for how that substance is going to behave in the body, what it's going to do or what it won't be able to do, where it can go in the body and how it needs to get there, whether it needs to be transported by something else or whether it could just dissolve and go everywhere on its own, things like that. So major like physiological implications for, for things based on their, based on their chemistry. Yeah. So when we say uh, lipid or fatty acid or fat, we're, we're kind of just lumping that all together, even though there are some slight chemical differences based on, on the nomenclature, but the, the base sort of characteristic is that it's insoluble in water. Uh, so all fats have chemical structures consisting of a chain of carbon atoms bonded to hydrogen atoms. Differences among fats arise in how long the chain of carbons are, their configuration, so the actual structure, the types of chemical bonds, and this gives them different names as well as different properties and you know ultimately effects uh, in the body. Uh, so for example, saturated fats have all single bonds between their carbon atoms, uh, which is why they're called saturated. They're fully saturated with hydrogens or other uh, sort of uh, uh, chemical compounds. Whereas unsaturated fats contain at least one double bond. A fatty acid chain with one double bond is called a monounsaturated fat. 
mono meaning one, and a fatty acid with multiple double bonds is called a polyunsaturated fat, meaning more than one. Uh, fish oil is actually a type of polyunsaturated fat. When you hear us see, say the word PUFAs, we mean polyunsaturated fatty acids. So fish oil is a type of PUFA, if you will. They are called omega-3 fatty acids or omega-3s, or sometimes you'll see them abbreviated as N3s uh, because they have a carbon-carbon double bond located three carbons from the end of the chain aka the omega-3 position. Uh, similarly, omega-6 fatty acids have a carbon-carbon double bond, six carbons in, and there's even omega-9 fatty acids, which have a carbon-carbon double bond, you guessed it, nine carbons into the chain. Um, so there are several different types of omega-3 uh, fats, uh, but the majority of the scientific research focuses on three. There's alpha-linolenic uh, acid, aka ALA, uh, icosopentanoic acid, which is EPA, and I can't even say what DHA is. How do you think you would, how would you say that? Docosa hexanoic acid. Yeah, you could sound that out. So there's <laughs> ALA, EPA, and DHA. Those are the three major types of uh, omega-3 uh, fatty acids that are studied in the scientific research with respect to humans. Um, ALA contains 18 carbon atoms, whereas EPA and DHA are considered long chain omega-3s because they have 20 carbons for EPA and 22 carbons for DHA. And so we're going to focus most of this uh, podcast on these long chain omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA. Uh, just to, uh, for completion purposes, omega-6 fatty acids have a carbon-carbon double bond that's six carbons away from the end of the fatty chain, also known again as the omega-6 position. Um, this is uh, linoleic acid and arachidonic acid are the two major physiologically relevant omega-6s. Um, you can find ALA, which again is that short chain, 18 carbon long uh, omega-3 fatty acid in plant oils such as flaxseed, soybean, and canola oils, whereas DHA and EPA are present in fish, fish oils, and krill oils, but they are originally synthesized by microalgae, not the fish themselves. So the fish actually consume these phytoplankton that in turn consume microalgae, and they accumulate the omega-3s in their tissues that way. Uh, omega-3 fats are present in several dietary supplement formulations, including fish oil, krill oil, cod liver oil, and vegetarian products that contain uh, algal oil. Are you taking any uh, algal oil? I am taking none of the above substances. <laughs> none of it. None of it. You know, the other case report, I think I, I, yeah, I texted you about this. I was like, oh, we could start out with hypervitaminosis A uh, because some of these, and I think it's mostly co cod liver oil, although some fish oil supplements will have like fish oil paired with vitamin A in mm -hmm. itself. And so this guy was taking 25 plus fish oil caps a day with all this vitamin A. And it turns out it's a terrible idea. <laughs> well, it's a lot of vitamin A. So you can get yeah. hypervitaminosis A and that has a whole bunch of uh, uh, unwanted sequelae afterwards. But yes. we'll, maybe we'll cover that in vitamin <laughs> supplementation on another podcast. All right. So that's what a fish, fish oil is. We're, again, we're going to focus on these long chain omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA. Um, so what do they do? So Austin, you want to talk about what omega-3 fatty acids supposedly do in the body? Sure. Uh, you know, most of these fatty acids, they play multiple different roles uh, in, in various areas. Um, you know, obviously fats in general can be oxidized, can be burned for, for energy purposes, but a lot of these ones in particular play other roles as well, including, you know, sticking themselves or, or get, ending up getting stuck into the, the membranes of all of our cells. Um, and additionally providing various kind of signaling uh, mechanisms, signaling properties, or they can drive certain 
uh, uh, pathways that end up generating mediators that play a role in cardiovascular function, in the immune and kind of inflammatory systems, and other kind of like almost hormonal type signaling uh, in, yeah. in, in it's various like ways. Autocrine, so, paracrine, all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, it's real. It's very complex. Very complex. <laughs> and and so so uh, and unfortunately, because it's very complex, that means that the way that it is typically presented uh, ends up being highly, highly, highly oversimplified, and that uh, has been a major problem and source of frustration when it comes to conversations around these topics. So, so I'll illustrate what I mean is that, uh, in particular, some of these signaling molecules are called eicosanoids. And, and again, we're, we're going to cause some eyes to glaze over with, with some of the, the complex biology and, and chemistry terms, but these are a class of molecules that, uh, ex again, exert a number of different signaling and other biological functions that are derived from these omega-3 and omega-6 polyunsaturated fats like EPA and, and DHA. And so if you go into a basic kind of biochemistry textbook and you look at, you know, the omega-6 fatty acids, um, they will show you pathways by which these fats can be metabolized and result in uh, uh, mediators and, and signals uh, that drive things like inflammation, that drive constriction of blood vessels, that drive the aggregation of platelets, which can increase, you know, the risk of clotting and problems happening. And then conversely, you can see pathways by which some of the omega-3 fats can be metabolized and processed into things that generate more anti-inflammatory kind of uh, uh, effectors. And so there are certainly exceptions to some of these, but ultimately that has become heavily oversimplified to the point where people think, okay, omega-6 drives inflammation uh, and omega-3 drives anti-inflammation. So if I just, you know, eliminate the all omega-6s or as many as possible for my diet or like villainize, you know, these, these polyunsaturated fats like linoleic acid um, and increase my intake of omega-3s like things from fish oil, um, then I will decrease inflam inflammation, promote anti-inflammation. And then that... <laughs> again, got distilled, oversimplified to the point of the old, as you said, as you referred to the old fish oil calculator, where it's like, oh, you eat this much junk, just like, you know, quintuple your intake of fish oil pills, and it'll cancel it out. It's a simple, you know, omega six, omega three ratio or something. It's just, like. it's just math, just math. <laughs> it was like, uh, did, did you ever get into the zone diet? Uh, I was aware of what it was, but I certainly did not do it myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the idea, the idea was that if you ate in this particular zone, then you would have you would consume uh, therefore less omega six fatty acids, and then you're taking fish oil, so you'd have more omega three fatty acids. You'd be in the zone where you'd have less pro-inflammatory eicosanoids and more anti-inflammatory eicosanoids, thereby controlling your body wide inflammation on this sort of cellular level. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know that that's where this sort of claim about the omega six to omega three ratio like began, but certainly one of the areas where it was popularized. The problem is that we don't really have a well-defined ratio at all of like, yeah, this is, you know, validated, reliable, and predicts sort of these inflammatory things that can happen in the body, particularly, uh, you know, disease-related states. It's just, it's just made up. And I, I cannot stress that enough, this idea that there's some sort of like omega-3 to omega-6 ratio that will portend either good or bad health outcomes. I, we don't have that number. We don't know that. We know that particular dietary patterns that subsequently result, you know, in particular omega-3 fatty acid intake and omega-6 fatty acid intake will tend to promote health. But even some of those diets are 
you know, relatively high in omega-6 fatty acids because they're coming from PUFAs. And we know that, you know, PUFA intake, uh, you know, can be part of a health-promoting dietary pattern. In fact, it is, especially if you're replacing uh, saturated fat from from meat, animal products, uh, and whatnot. So I just cannot stress this enough that that ratio and that idea is an idea. It is an idea. But, but <laughs> I'll give you that. I'll, I'll give, give you that. that. Yeah, you had, you had me the first. But But as far as the actual ratio, it's just kind of like made up. You know, I don't know if you, I don't know if you get any questions about that on like your AMAs or anything like that. Like, what do you think about the omega-3, omega-6 fatty acid ratio? Yeah. I mean, I know that we both get questions on that. We definitely get questions about linoleic acid because mainly these days it's, it's less as a result of the, the paleo types these days and much more a result of the, the carnivore types. So we got, mm. you know, uh, certain psychiatrists, carnivores out there who are walking around yelling about linoleic acid. When, if you look at long-term perspective, you know, cohort data, intervention data, mechanistic data, all showing improvements in blood lipid markers, cardiovascular risk factors, things like that with those kind of, uh, with those kind of substitutions. Um, and then you also have people who say like, I stopped eating linoleic acid and my health improved dramatically. And it's like, well, uh, I'm, I'm more curious what the actual foods were that were eliminated yeah, yeah. and replaced. It's, what did you, you replace? Consume, yeah. You know, you weren't following the actual dietary guidelines, uh, you know, before and, and perhaps you substituted out some junk and yeah, things get better, but uh, probably not this particular polyunsaturated fatty acid because of how consistent the evidence is that we have on these things uh, impacting cardiovascular risk and, and other things typically in the, in the direction of, of benefit. Um, so yeah, things are yeah. complicated. You can't, you can't, uh, flip levers of inflammation in your, in your body just by, you know, this kind of a oversimplified ratio of intake. This stuff is all very highly regulated. Your, your body is, uh, in many ways smarter than you are and won't have <laughs> you do that to yourself. <laughs> yeah. All this is to say that omega-3 fatty acids are involved in this signaling cascade involving eicosanoids, some of them being pro-inflammatory, some of them being anti-inflammatory as far as how this uh, you know, the ratio kind of plays out. We, we just don't know. We, we know that the dietary pattern appears to be far more important, but if you're thinking about like, what does, what do omega-3 fatty acids do? Well, they're involved in signaling for many different, uh, tissues, organ systems, et cetera. So everything from the cardiovascular system, pulmonary system, immune system, endocrine system, all, all get signaled from, uh, these eicosanoids produced from, uh, omega-3 fatty acids. Um, that being said, you know, we don't really measure omega-3 levels clinically. Like Austin, I don't know if you've ever actually ordered like an omega-3 like serum level or plasma level. Have you ever done that? I have. No, definitely not. You can. It is a test. I'll give them that. You can order that. The problem is that it really is more of an acute test based on like your most recent meal. So for example, if you, even if you did a fasted uh, blood test where you measured omega-3 fatty acids uh, in the blood, it doesn't really reflect this long-term status rather. It's more like, well, what was your last meal, you know, and, and what's floating around the blood. So that's not really terribly relevant. A better test is like this omega-3 index, uh, which basically measures the fatty acid profile of the red blood cells. It's basically like your red blood cells uh, on average live for about 120 days. And so if you take red blood cells and you measure the fatty acid profile of these cells, you can kind of get a, a, a picture of what, you know, your omega-3 index is is. Uh, so for example, EPA and DHA typically comprise about three to 5% of red blood cells, uh, fatty acids in Western populations with low fish intakes, whereas in Japan where fish consumption is high, uh, the red blood cell EPA and DHA levels are about twice uh, as high. Um, and so higher omega-3 index measures are consistently associated with better outcomes compared with lower omega-3 indices. To be clear, these findings are useful for research and public health recommendation purposes, but it's not really 
necessary for people to go get this test just to know. So if you have a health promoting dietary pattern and you eat fish on a regular basis, and in some cases, even if you don't eat fish, if you're a vegan, for example, you don't eat any animal products. I don't know that you need to measure this provided you're already eating a health promoting dietary pattern. Do you agree with that? I would agree with that. Not something I would recommend screening, you know, at this point until or unless we were to to see evidence that broad scale population screening of the omega-3 index and subsequent interventions improve outcomes, which I do not think is ever going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just more of reflective of the dietary pattern. And it's like, well, of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So let's see how much EPA and DHA are people consuming. Uh, consumption of these fats is relevant because they are essential, which is a term used to describe substances that cannot be synthesized by the body and must therefore be consumed in the diet. In other words, we can't make our own omega-3 or omega-6 fats, so we need to eat them. Um, data from the 2011-2012 National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, also known as NHANES, uh, most people in the United States consume the recommended amount of omega-3s as ALA, which is that short-chain omega-3, not the long-chain fish oil, EPA, and DHA that we're principally discussing here. Uh, the consumption of DHA and EPA from foods contributes a very small amount to total daily omega-3 intakes, about 40 milligrams in children and teens, and about 90 milligrams per day in adults. Uh, for reference, this is about the same content of EPA and DHA in about four to five ounces of cooked salmon. Um, fish oil uh, supplementation, and this is pretty commonly used in the United States with about 7.8% of adults reporting that they used it within the last three months and about 1.1% of children using it as well in the same sort of time frame. Uh, so that's a pretty common way for people to get uh, in these long chain omega-3 uh, fatty acids, particularly in the United States where fish consumption is just not as high as in other cultures. Um, all that to say, a deficiency in these essential fatty acids, either omega-3s or omega-6, uh, is really rare. It, in conditions where we do have an essential fatty acid deficiency, you get rough, scaly skin and dermatitis because, again, these are essential. We can't make our own. Uh, however, there are no known cutoff concentrations for DHA uh, or EPA uh, that reliably define deficiency. Basically, we just use these clinical outcomes like, oh, you have this, these symptoms or these uh, clinical presentation, probably an essential fatty acid deficiency. Uh, we can't, we're not really measuring and saying, oh, yeah. Boom, got the diagnosis. Um, a true deficiency of essential fatty acids in healthy individuals in the developed world basically does not happen. Um, but we know about it mostly from people receiving this parenteral or IV nutrition that lacks PUFA fortification. Um, and again, that just stands for polyunsaturated fatty acids. So basically, people who are getting IV nutrition that wasn't fortified with uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids would get this dermatitis and scaly skin and other sort of issues. And then that was due to an essential fatty acid deficiency. We learned about that in the 70s and 80s. And so now pretty much all of these parenteral nutrition formulations are fortified. Uh, can you remember, I mean, I know you probably just consult dietary, like nutrition service in the hospital with somebody's on IV nutrition. Have you ever seen anybody like, oh, we're not going to fortify this thing with PUFAs? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> so I, mean, I think, I think that, I think that, you know, this topic is something that we were just taught in medical school of like, oh, this is how we know that these things are essential. This is what happens if you don't get them. But it's such a well under, you know, recognized thing when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, providing patients with this kind of, uh, this kind of nutrition that it does not happen, uh, at this point because yeah. it's can, a recognized complication. Can you imagine if somebody came in and they needed IV nutrition for whatever reason, they're like, no, dude, I don't, I don't want any omega-6s. I don't want any poofas. <laughs> no seed killed. oils, bro. No seed oils. Yeah. Seed oils kill. And it's like, if okay. you don't get these, <laughs> you're going to have problems like hundred percent. Yeah. I guess people aren't really dictating their care on that level. Fortunately, fortunately for everybody involved. 
All right. So now we're going to dig into the evidence. I know we went through some pretty complex biochemistry. We talked about what fish oil is. Uh, we talked about what it potentially does. Again, it's involved in this complex signaling cascade involving icosanoids. Uh, and we're here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, episode 193 with Dr. Austin Baraki. So let's see what the evidence says about supplemental fish oil, particularly these long chain omega-3 fatty acids. So evidence that higher omega-3 levels are associated with a reduced risk of several chronic diseases, uh, including coronary heart disease, suggests that many Americans could benefit from slightly higher intakes, um, either through fish or fish oil supplementation. Let's see what the evidence says. And I'm going to let you guys know right off the jump, we're going to spend the majority of the time talking about heart disease because when you see like fish, people think heart. That just, it just like goes one-on-one. They're like, oh yeah, fish oil reduces heart disease. Fish oil is heart healthy, yada, yada, yada. And I, that claim has been around for 30 something years that since the FDA kind of approved fish oil manufacturers to make that claim. And uh, it has persisted ever since. So yeah, much of the thinking around fish oil as it relates to heart disease can be traced back to data from the 1970s that suggested the Inuit, uh, who uh, subsisted largely on a high-fat diet of whale blubber, uh, had low rates of heart disease. In the 1970s, two Danish chemists, Hans Olaf Bang and Jorn Dyerberg, visited Greenland uh, and drew a blood tests from their Inuit tribe, and they analyzed their diets, and they found that, high, they, found that they had higher intakes of omega-3 fatty acids. They then looked at local death reports and found relatively low frequency of heart disease complications and concluded that there was a relationship between the two. Uh, in retrospect, this is probably not the best way to go about this. <laughs> Austin, when you read this, were you like, that's it? That's, that's really what they did? <laughs> like, what, what, what does that mean to you? Like, how, like that just kicked this whole, whole thing into gear or what? Yeah, I mean, I think that, look, hypotheses come from someplace, right? And so it is... I don't, I don't think it's any less valid of a way to generate this hypothesis as, you know, almost, almost anything else. The issue is that it needs to be kind of maintained as a hypothesis and not be used to draw confident conclusions, not to draw definitive conclusions. But the problem is, you know, nowadays, this literally just happened like a week or two ago in our, in our group, in our Facebook group on a, in a conversation on the topic where somebody said, yeah, oh yeah, you know, when it comes to <laughs> these dietary patterns and their impact on heart disease, well, what about the Inuit who, you know, live on high animal fat diets and don't have any heart disease? And it's like, when was the last time you ever, or if you ever actually looked at the, the data on this? Um, and so, you know, it is, it is held up as a confident conclusion when I hope, I hope, you know, I don't know those two dudes personally, but I hope that they, you know, potentially discussed it as a hypothesis, not as a confident conclusion of like, boom, case closed because that's, boom, that's not how, it. Yeah. how this should work. Um, yeah. so, so I have no issue with it as a hypothesis that then would drive subsequent higher quality kind of analysis and stuff like that, which has been done and has shown that those individuals eating that kind of a diet in that situation do not in fact have a substantially lower rate of heart disease compared to, you know, quote unquote, Western populations have similar, if not higher rates of cardiovascular disease, in some cases, higher rates of stroke, things like that. Uh, but again, this kind of, uh, feel good story about a traditional quote unquote, or a hunter gatherer or ancestral, you know, population. It's a really appealing story to people in that kind of like a paleo type scene. And so people like stories. Uh, and so when the story fits with what they want to believe, then they'll, they'll run with it in this way. So, um, turns out that generated the hypothesis, but is inappropriately, you know, extrapolated and held up as a strong conclusion by people. The Inuit consuming all whale blubber diets practically do not in fact have substantially lower rates of cardiovascular disease compared to, you know, other populations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of observational data here, you know, where people who eat 
consume more fish, tend to have better uh, cardiovascular disease related outcomes. So there may be something here. We just really need to then go look at like more controlled data sets, which is uh, what we're going to do here. So two studies out of two uh, that have happened in 2018, the vitamin D and the omega-3 trial. Uh, that's also known as the vital study. Uh, pretty much every study that we're going to talk about today has some some acronym associated with it. So uh, when you want to go pull these sources, I've linked them all in the description below based on the acronym. So the vital study, which is a study on the combination of vitamin D and omega-3 fatty acid supplementation. Um, and the other study that was done in 2018 is called a study of cardiovascular events in diabetes, which is also known as the ASCEND study. So both trials compared one gram per day of uh, omega-3 fatty acids with placebo, but in different populations. The vital study included about 25,000 men aged 50 and older and women who were age 55 and older who had no previous heart attacks, strokes, or cancer. They also, again, used uh, uh, vitamin D in about half of the, uh, their, their subjects, uh, whereas the other half got placebo. Uh, the ASCEND trial used about 15,000 adults aged 40 or older, so slightly younger, uh, and they had diabetes but no evidence of cardiovascular disease. So in one study, these people had um, – uh, effectively no diabetes and no cardiovascular disease. And in the other study, the ASCEND trial, they had diabetes, but no existing cardiovascular disease. Uh, Results-wise, the VITAL study, the omega-3 supplement did not significantly reduce the rate of major cardiovascular events combined. So all of them together, heart attacks, strokes, uh, death from uh, heart attacks or strokes after a meeting of 5.3 years. But there was a significant uh, reduction in total heart attack rates by about 28%. Um, particularly in those who ate less fish. So these tended to be populations that were of black uh, descent and also just had a low baseline sort of fish intake. The ASCEND trial had similar findings. So after a mean follow-up of 7.4 years, the omega-3 supplement did not significantly affect the risk of serious vascular event, which is basically a combination score of non-fatal heart attack or stroke, uh, transient ischemic attack, uh, and cardiovascular death, which was excluding intracranial hemorrhage. Um, however, the omega-3 supplementation group did significantly reduce the risk of cardiovascular death by about 19% in comparison with placebo. So, so far, so good. We're, we're saying, well, it may not have this huge effect, but it is reducing the rates of uh, heart attacks and maybe uh, reducing the risk of cardiovascular death in some folks, particularly those uh, with low fish intake and maybe who have some existing risk factors for cardiovascular disease, like diabetes in this case. Um, in 2019, another study was done, this time with an, a prescription form, a uh, special form of fish oil. So this is the 2019 reduction of cardiovascular events with icosapent ethyl intervention trial, also known as the REDUCE-IT trial. They used uh, Vexipa, which is a high-dose prescription form of omega-3s containing EPA in a form of uh, icosapent ethyl, IPE, which is an ethyl ester. Austin, you want to talk about like what that is um, just briefly compared to like a regular over-the-counter fish oil? Uh, yeah. So, so this is, I mean, I think that the simplest way is, to think about it is we mentioned that there's these two different forms of fish oils, uh, molecules, the EPA and the, and the DHA. This is e specifically EPA and it's kind of highly purified and ethyl ester just as another fancy chemistry term for how it's bonded at, at, at one end that we don't really need to get into the details of. But I think it's worth pointing out again that this trial, which we'll, we'll get into is used a high dose formulation of purified and slightly modified EPA, which is not the same as what you can get over the counter. So in other words, uh, the based on the conclusions of this study, you should not, you know, uh, extrapolate this and say, okay, if I go out and take the same dose of any over the counter, you know, general fish oil or generic fish oil or something that'll, that it'll be the same thing, because it will definitely not be. 
It's not not the same. Not the same, as it were. Uh, so this trial, again, it's the Reduce It trial, came out in 2019, included uh, just over 8,000 participants who had existing cardiovascular disease. Again, that's going to be important. We'll come back to that. They were 45 years or older uh, with diabetes and at least one other risk factor uh, for cardiovascular disease. All participants had a fasting triglyceride level of 135 to 499 milligrams per deciliter, even though they were receiving statin therapy. And they had an LDL cholesterol level ranging from 41 to 100 milligrams per deciliter. So their LDL cholesterol was, you know, more or less well controlled, uh, but their triglyceride levels were not. Um, so patients received either four grams per day of Vexipa uh, or a placebo of mineral oil for a median of 4.9 years. The Vexipa significantly reduced rates of cardiovascular events, which is a composite score of cardiovascular death, non-fatal heart attack, non-fatal stroke, coronary revascularization, and unstable angina, or angina with chest pain, uh, and they reduced all of the, that uh, composite score by about 25%. It also significantly reduced rates of other outcomes like cardiovascular death by 20%, fatal or non-fatal stroke by 28%, and fatal or non-fatal heart attack by 31%, which I remember reading this study, like we shared it. And we were both like, holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) Because at this point, that was like, we had some small signal that fish oil might do something, um, but we still weren't very sure because, again, the subgroups, you're like, all right, well, is it just good for people with existing cardiovascular disease? What's the dose we should use? Like, what, you know, specific type? And then this thing came out and blew everything out of the water. This is like easily the biggest results. And to see that happen on top of patients who are already treated with other, you know, lipid lowering therapy like like statins and things like that. Yeah. So when we saw this, we were like, ooh, Vexipa. That's pretty big. (laughs) That's pretty big. So that was 2019. 2020, a clinical trial known as the STRENGTH trial, great name, by the way, which stands for Long-Term Outcomes Study to Assess Statin Residual Risk with Epinova in High Cardiovascular Risk Patients with Hypertriglyceridemia. Less cool title. Less cool title. (laughs) (laughs) So they used, again, a prescription form of omega-3s that contained both EPA and DHA in a carboxylic acid form, which, again, is just a fancy way uh, to describe the chemical sort of nature and structure of this particular type of omega-3 fatty acid. So this study included 13,000 participants from 22 countries. Mean age was six. 62.5 years uh, old, and they were uh, individuals who had a high cardiovascular risk, including hypertriglyceridemia, so high triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol, diabetes, and had established cardiovascular disease. So these people uh, were at high risk of having a bad outcome from existing cardiovascular disease. Uh, Participants received either four grams per day of this prescription form of omega-3 fatty acid or a placebo of corn oil in addition to their usual uh, medications, which included statins, for uh, a projected trial duration of 4.5 years. So the trial was supposed to keep going. However, the trial was stopped after participants were treated for about 3.5 years when the probability of benefit from the omega-3 fatty acid supplementation appeared low. The reason uh, why this was also stopped is because they had the people who were being treated with the uh, uh, supplemental fish oil had a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation, uh, which I think we should take a pause and just talk about like, what is atrial fibrillation and why is that bad? Yeah, uh, it's actually something that more people may have heard of even just on television commercials in the US <laughs> than, than they than they realize that's so often uh, uh, kind of abbreviated or termed AFib or AF in, in uh, um you know, literature and things like that. Basically, it's an abnormal, it's a type of abnormal heart rhythm where your heart beats irregularly. 
Now, not all irregular heart rhythms are atrial fibrillation, but atrial fibrillation is a type of an irregular heart rhythm. And the reason why it is problematic, among others, is that it can lead to blood kind of pooling in a particular area of the heart for longer than it should. And whenever blood pools someplace, it's going to have a tendency to clot. And so if you form a clot in your heart, um, it can get ejected out of the heart since your heart is, in fact, a pump. And if it shoots a clot out of your heart, that can make its way uh, to various parts of your body and cause complications if that clot blocks the blood flow to that organ. So most concerningly is if a clot gets shot up to your brain, blocks off blood flow, causes a stroke, um, or similarly, you know, a clot can get shot out to the rest of your body. It can end up in the arteries that go to your kidney or to your legs or to various other areas, cut off blood flow and, and be problematic. And so patients with atrial fibrillation, you know, they may or may not have symptoms of it. Sometimes patients can feel the irregularity. Uh, sometimes they can't. Um, and, uh, and, and in general, when patients have this, um, we try to get them out of that rhythm and keep them out of that rhythm. But some patients are hearts are a little stubborn, particularly the longer they've been in this abnormal heart rhythm. And so ultimately, we may be stuck in some people with them living either with episodes or with permanent kind of, uh, you know, atrial fibrillation, and then they need to get treated with blood thinners. Historically, uh, you know, warfarin, that blood thinner that we mentioned at the very beginning of the episode was was used to treat those patients. Nowadays, more often for patients who have atrial fibrillation, that's that's not related to, you know, problems with their heart valves and things like that. We have, you know, newer, fancier and, and more convenient blood thinners that prevent the formation of those clots. Um, so to, to reduce the risk of having a stroke or one of those other complications. But of course, the downside to being on blood thinners is, you know, while it may reduce your risk of a clot, it can significantly increase your risk of bleeding. And so that is one of the most common things that I see in the hospital is patients coming in either for complications of a clot where it shouldn't be or for complications of bleeding <laughs> uh, kind of in either direction. And in general, you know, due to how potentially devastating uh, these clotting events can be, we tend to prefer, you know, we, we, we let, we, we are more willing to let people bleed because we can treat bleeds more easily um, in order to prevent a, a, a potentially devastating stroke or, you know, block blockage of blood flow down to the leg requiring an amputation or something, something like that. So yeah. that's like a short story on atrial fibrillation. Yeah, that was actually, I mean, that's the concern with that woman that we could presented in the initial part where her INR was 4.3. If she had, you know, had a fall or something like that, her risk of bleeding was much mm -hmm. elevated. And in fact, the one of the case reports that I was going to actually use, this woman fell off a stool and she was on uh, warfarin and then also started taking fish oil and she had a massive subdural hematoma uh, mm -hmm. secondarily to that. And her INR was found to be in the fives. And you're like, yeah, makes sense too high um so in any case th when this study came out this was like the first study that maybe showed ooh, maybe there is actually some risk from a cardiovascular perspective to fish oil supplementation because at that point no one had ever thought about like atrial fibrillation or any other sort of untoward outcome respect to cardiovascular disease from Ma fish oil. mainly because mainly because it's unclear and it still is unclear what the mechanism would be like how how that would happen how though um, yeah i still don't know but it's something that is worth noting yeah. So I remember that came out and we were like, uh, what? And then, uh, so in 2021, so last year, a meta-analysis of eight randomized controlled trials that encompassed over 80,000 participants, which included the trials we've already discussed, the ASCEND trial, the REDUCE-IT trial, the STRENGTH trial, showed a significant association between omega-3 supplementation and the risk of atrial fibrillation. While the overall rate of atrial fibrillation was relatively low, so it increased risk 1% to 5% um, in the majority of these trials. The studies that included an older population uh, and those uh, with heart failure appeared to have an even higher rate of atrial fibrillation. And you think about the people who would most likely benefit from maybe omega-3 fatty acid supplementation 
that that would be those people. So higher, there was also a higher risk associated with a higher dose. Um, and so in individuals who are being treated for like hypertriglyceridemia in some of these trials with the higher dose of fish oil supplementation, they seem to have higher rates or higher risks uh, of developing atrial fibrillation, which when that came out again, we we're like, dang it, this thing is becoming more complicated by the second. Um, so, you know, overall, we're, we're kind of at the, uh, right now we're at this impasse. We're like, all right, so fish oils does appear to maybe reduce the risk of heart attack, risk of stroke, death from um, cardiovascular uh, related complications, particularly in those with existing cardiovascular disease, but it may also increase risk of atrial fibrillation. So like, what do? Um, 2020, a Cochrane review of 86 randomized controlled trials that were published between 1968 and 2019 found that a half a gram per day to more than five grams per day of long chain omega-3 fatty acids for 12 to 88 months in a total of 160,000 plus participants reduced serum triglycerides by about 15% and slightly decreased rates of cardiovascular mortality and coronary heart disease events. Uh, there are issues with this data regarding like how the meta-analysis was done subgroups, et cetera. And did they measure actual nutrient levels? Like, did they have low levels of omega-3s prior to supplementation? What's their dietary pattern, et cetera. But all of that says to me that if we need to lower triglycerides to reduce risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, that ASCVD, we can do that with fish oil. Uh, that should probably be reserved for people who are already on other medications we know that lower triglycerides, so people who are already on statins who need further sort of lowering of triglycerides to optimize their risk factors for heart disease. Um, that said, in people without existing cardiovascular disease or significant risk factors for cardiovascular disease, fish oil doesn't appear to do much uh, and may increase the risk of atrial fibrillation, uh, which is not without its own set of risks. So the other last caveat is that if we were, I was going to recommend, should somebody take fish oil for quote unquote heart health, it would probably be Vexipa or one of the other ethyl ester forms that are out there rather than just over the counter fish oil, you know, cause that seems to be like the most robust data that we actually have as far as reducing risk. Or, or that carboxylic acid the, form that did not really pan out either. Yeah, it was uh, we, don't, we don't know, we don't know why, you know, that may or may not have, have demonstrated an effect, but uh, until or unless it does, um, sticking to the ones that actually have shown an effect would seem to be the way to go. Yeah. So if someone has existing cardiovascular disease, they're already, you know, optimized on medications otherwise, and they still have high triglycerides, fish oil supplementation probably is going to be beneficial to them, particularly they're, if they're at low risk for atrial fibrillation, and that should be monitored over time. If you don't have any of these risk factors, I don't know that fish oil supplementation is for you. And that's kind of how, where I'm, I stand right now as far as like fish oil and heart health. Like if you're otherwise healthy, your dietary pattern's on point and you have, you know, don't have uh, any need to lower your triglycerides <laughs> as evidenced by the fact that you're not on existing medications, we know do a much better job at lowering triglycerides anyway. I don't know that, you know, you should be just popping fish oil just for, just for funsies. What do you think about that? Yeah. And, and just to caveat it further, I think that for the high heart disease risk people, rather than just using the term fish oil, because again, as we've suggested, that's a somewhat nebulous term. It's like, are we talking about EPA? Are we talking about DHA? Are we talking about both? Um, or are we talking about one of these prescription products? And then what dosage are we talking about? Right. And then what's the background diet of the person? There are all these things to, to think about, right? So the higher somebody's background dietary, you know, intake, the higher their nutrient status is on this stuff, 
the less likely you are to benefit from supplementation. That's the case with effectively any nutrient or any supplement that, you know, uh, that, that, uh, that is to shore up levels, so to speak. If you're already replete with that nutrient, then taking more is not necessarily going to be better. If you have a, a situation where there's a low dietary intake, then supplementation can, does have the potential to increase that into kind of a more normal or more therapeutic range. Um, but again, we need to talk about what is the dosage required? What is the formulation required? And so our best evidence that we see so far is particularly when it relates to cardiovascular health is more on the EPA side than it is on the DHA side. And definitely with this more kind of purified EPA, this icosapen ethyl or the ethyl ester formulation seems to be the more compelling compared to just like, you know, what you can grab at a GNC or something like that. Um, but definitely agree that like for people who are not in these higher risk situations, if you are thinking about taking fish oil for this reason, I would just take a step back and think about, okay, what are the other kind of risk factors that I may have for, as it relates to heart disease risk? Because there are probably some more potent levers that you can pull. And so for people who want reference or recommendations on that, we have our uh, article on the website. Uh, I think it's titled like, what should my uh, priorities be for, for health or like our seven health priorities on the website? And like working on those, or as we talked about in the last episode, actually, the, the uh, AHA's, uh, what was it? The, the healthy eight. Essential eight. Yeah. Essential eight. Focusing on those things is more likely to get you a more potent benefit as it relates to not just cardiovascular health, but like general lifespan, health span, all this other stuff than would taking any kind of over-the-counter fish oil for people who are not in one of these extra high-risk situations where the particular formulations and dosages would be more specifically recommended. Okay. Do you think that the American Heart Association was trying to co-opt the title of the movie from Quentin Tarantino, the hateful eight <laughs> or, or was Quentin Tarantino thinking like the essential eight. And then it was like the American heart association was like, nah, dog, we're about to use that. <laughs> yeah, great movie. <laughs> we'll never know. We'll never know. Uh, interestingly, speaking of the American heart association, they do recommend that folks consume about one gram per day of EPA and DHA from fish. So actually eating the fish, but they do not recommend omega three supplements for folks who are not at high risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Um, and then just to, just to say that treatment specifically for high triglycerides is closer to four grams of, uh, fish oil per day, not one gram per day. But again, that should probably be the Epinova or Vexipa or whatever, and not just over the counter fish oil from GNC. No offense to GNC. This is not like a, we're not ripping on GNC. It could be from anybody, <laughs> vitamin shop, whatever, come at me. Okay. So that's heart disease and fish oil in a nutshell. We're going to briefly cover a few other things that people say that fish oil tends to help with. So the first up here is the uh, other big uh, disease process that we, we, we talk about quite frequently, which is cancer. So Austin, just umbrella term, we talk about cancer, like what is cancer? Uh, I know I'm putting you on the spot here and you're like, do you want to discuss the meaning of life first? <laughs> but, in its but, simplest form, cancer is just unchecked cell growth and replication. And that can be in the form of solid tumors or uh, in the more interestingly named liquid tumors in the blood and bone marrow and things like that. But basically cell growth that is out of control, unchecked and can invade and damage tissues and, uh, you know, obviously cause death. Yeah. So researchers have hypothesized that higher intakes of omega-3s from either foods or supplements, uh, potentially both, might reduce the risk of cancer due to their anti-inflammatory effects, which we think may be mediated through these icosanoids uh, and that pathway, uh, and may have some potential to inhibit cellular growth factors. The problem that we have here is in the evidence. So results from observational studies have been inconsistent and, as we'd expect, vary by cancer site and other factors, including gen gender and genetic risk. So, I mean, there are thousands of different types of cancer, more than that. And so just to say, that, like, fish oil reduces risk of cancer, it's like, 
I'm not buying that at all. If you want to say, <laughs> if someone were to say fish oil reduces the risk of breast cancer, particularly this type of breast cancer, I'd be more on board with that because that's something I could actually like go look up. Right. Uh, but to just to say that fish oil is this panacea type, you know, supplement that reduces risk of all types of cancer. It's like, Impossible. yeah, it seems less plausible. And also I'm going to need you to cite your source on that. So some evidence does suggest that higher omega-3 intakes reduce the risk of breast cancer and possibly colorectal cancers. Uh, for example, a large clinical trial found that long-chain omega-3 uh, supplements um, did not reduce uh, the overall risk of cancer or the risk of breast, prostate, and colorectal cancers, but there are some other observational studies that do did show a, a bene- potential benefit there. But that's just a – I mean, we're just – the tip of the iceberg there with respect to different cancer types. So I think if somebody is suggesting that fish oil supplementation – uh, reduces risk of cancer. You need to know the exact type, the dose, the administration. What was the baseline dietary pattern? Like, did this actually do yeah. anything? And so, right now, I cannot confidently recommend that fish oil does anything with respect to the trajectory of cancer risk, mortality from existing cancer, or like you know, treatment trajectory, anything like that. So, as always in science, when we don't have good data to hang our hat on, additional study is needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our, A few other often cited diseases and processes that fish oil supplementation um, reportedly benefits. So the biggest one I see has got to be this sort of like cognitive umbrella uh, sort of term where it's like, oh, fish oil is like a nootropic. Just take fish oil, you'll get smarter. Um, and, And I think, you know, we were talking about this before we actually went on the air that maybe the particular type, the DHA, uh, the 22 carbon long fish oil might have some benefit here. Um, cause DHA comprises the majority of omega-3 fats in the brain, uh, a tissue that's 60% fat by weight and is definitely essential for normal neurological development and growth. There was a 2012 Cochrane analysis, which, uh, they're basically an independent a party that pulls a bunch of data together for clinicians and other uh, health care professionals. Um, they did this uh, report in 2012, and they, and I'm quoting, the direct evidence on the effect of omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acid supplementation on incident dementia is lacking. The available trials showed no benefit of omega-3 supplementation on cognitive function in cognitively healthy older people, and a subsequent analysis of uh, on omega-3 fatty acid supplementation for treating dementia found no convincing evidence for the efficacy of omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acid supplements in the treatment of mild to moderate Alzheimer dementia. Now, I know if you're listening to that, you're like, fuck, you just said dementia a bunch, Alzheimer's or, what, or whatever. It's like, yes, we're talking about very specific disease processes, and it would be very unbarbell medicine-like to say, yeah, fish oil helps with cognition. because it, Brain it's health. Just, brain health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, Austin, you know, you've been exposed to this uh, quite a bit. Where, like, where do you stand on sort of fish oil for improvement in cognitive decline or or risk or anything like that? Yeah, I I find this to be a particularly interesting area. And uh, based on what we've talked about so far, it'll be unsurprising to people when we say that this is complex. And part of the issue with any kind of meta analysis or like pooling, you know, bunches of studies together is that, you know, the, the idea of that whole process from a research standpoint is 
if I have a bunch of small data sets that may have more limited ability to, you know, find an effect or to, 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 to illustrate some kind of therapeutic benefit or potentially harm by pooling these things together and getting ultimately a bigger data set, then I have more kind of statistical power and things like that to potentially find a real effect if there, if there is one there. The issue, however, as some, you know, of our listeners may be familiar with to the extent they've tried to wade through any of this stuff is that you would prefer that if you're going to pool together a bunch of small data sets, that they tend to be generally more similar than different with respect to things like their methods, how they did the study, like the dosage, the populations, things like that, right? Because the more similar they are, then when you pull things together, you have still a more homogeneous kind of data set from which you have that kind of power to draw a conclusion. But to the extent that things are different or disparate or, or, or using, say, different interventions, using different dosages of an intervention in populations that are wildly different, the, ultimately you're mixing together things that will just uh, uh, ultimately point in different directions and you'll be biasing yourself to find nothing. Um, and so with any of these kind of analyses, particularly as it pertains to nutrients, um, as opposed to, to drugs like pharmaceutical interventions, when it comes to these nutrients, like you have to account for, as we've talked about before, what is the starting level of intake in people? For example, like, did you use a omega-3 index just as a, as an example? Did, did you start out with a low omega-3 index where you then dosed with sufficient amount of the supplement to achieve a high level? And then how does that relate to outcomes would be the way you would ideally want to go about this. But if I mix, for example, one population with high levels of baseline status, like a high omega-3 index, others with low, and then let's say I mix studies that some used high dose supplementation, others used low dose supplementation. If I mix people who did achieve, you know, higher levels of this nutrient at the end versus others who didn't ultimately actually get higher levels, all that stuff is going to result in the study just kind of coming out in a wash. And that's part of the issue with this literature. We've also even talked about it in other contexts with like the dietary fat stuff, mm. right? Where, where we talked about like people will send us a study of like this study found that high versus low saturated fat intake doesn't really relate to heart disease. And it's like, well, if both high and low groups were consuming low amounts of saturated fat overall, then of course they're, they're not that different. There's not enough of a contrast in exposure, for example, to see an effect. Um, so, so these things are, are, are things that get buried and are not really going to be explicitly pointed out in an abstract or something like that without wading through, through the details of it. So bottom line for me is I find this area interesting. I think that DHA does seem to play a significant role as it relates to neurological development, growth, function, physiology, the extent to which direct DHA supplementation uh, substantially impacts like long-term risk, for example, of things like dementia, I don't know yet. Um, however, there are some interesting, you know, studies of dietary interventions of actual fish consumption, you know, co pr pr prospective cohort stuff, things like that, that are showing, uh, some evidence of, of, uh, benefit, not just neurologically, but again, we know in multiple different areas from actually consuming fish. And so rather than giving a strong recommendation for fish oil supplementation in general, particularly DHA supplementation for this reason, I feel much more strongly about sticking with our food-based recommendation of like one to two servings of fatty fish per week for essentially all people. Um, that is kind of where I'm willing to hang my hat at the moment. Um, not dismissing the possibility of some neurological benefit from these things, but I feel more strongly about it from the dietary standpoint right now. And if we're going to make claims around the supplementation, I'd want to know more specifically, like, 
who's the population, where do they start from? What's the dosage of supplementation required to get them up to this level? And then what's the magnitude of an effect of effect? Like, did it actually matter? Like, you know, um, in the, in, in the, in the end. So that's kind of my, my spiel on the cognitive side of things. Yep. Yeah. There's, there's additional data on other conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, depression, preterm labor and pregnancy. These things are outside the scope of this podcast, but we've linked uh, resources in the description below. If you want to read up on these things, my take on the rest of these conditions is that it is complicated. I feel more confident in saying about rheumatoid arthritis and depression that the results that we have on supplementation do not appear to be clinically significant with respect to preterm labor and pregnancy. There's some evidence showing an increase in gestational age and birth weight, but as far as like preventing neurological development or something like that, or I don't know, I don't know. And uh, that's not for us to decide. It is interesting, but I don't feel confident in making a recommendation on any of those things uh, based on the existing data. Uh, certainly not contrary recommendations when it comes to like pregnancy related, like prenatal vitamins or uh, things of that nature. So uh, we're going to move into the risks of fish oil supplementation. And the, you know, just like anything, there are no biological free lunches. There are risks here. So the common side effects with respect to fish oil supplementation include a bad taste, bad breath, heartburn, nausea, gastrointestinal discomfort, diarrhea, headache, and odoriferous sweat, which seems like a <laughs> fancy way of saying smelly. Like I just – can you imagine sweating out fish just like – I'm thinking like what it, What do I normally – what are my pheromones normally and like what are my pheromones on fish? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so those are the, the traditional risk, uh, sort of side, side effects that are discussed with respect to fish oil. Um, we also discussed atrial fibrillation, which does appear to be a real risk, particularly with higher doses of fish oil. Um, this antiplatelet effect that we kind of let in with, uh, sort of bleed, increase in bleeding risk, um, that does not seem to be – you know, repeated in the literature when people have actually studied this. So most research indicates that doses of three to six grams of fish oil per day do not significantly affect the anticoagulant status of patients taking warfarin. A 2014 review concluded that omega-3s do not affect the risk of clinically significant bleeding. And the FDA approved package inserts for omega-3 pharmaceuticals state that studies with omega-3s have not produced clinically significant bleeding episodes. But the package inserts also state that patients taking these products with anticoagulants should be monitored periodically for changes in INR. And it's like, why'd you put that in there? Yeah. If you're so confident. As always, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, other risks uh, that we were, you know, uh, potentially going to discuss during the case report that we let in with is this uh, risk of hypervitaminosis. If your fish oil is actually like a polypill, so it's got more than just fish oil in it, you're at risk of, you know, taking too much if you take too much. Uh, also contamination, the same risks we have with any particular supplement. So you want the supplement to be CGMP certified, batch tested, either by USP, informed consent, NSF, all of those are uh, reputable sort of uh, third-party testing uh, sources. Um, but, it, but again, I think if we're recommending people take fish oil, it's probably going to be the prescription form for most of these, most of these things here. So let's get to the take-home. For fish oil, the benefits uh, are most significant for those at high risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease uh, in a secondary prevention situation. So people with existing risk or existing diagnosis of cardiovascular disease, uh, particularly those who require additional triglyceride lowering. And this should probably be that ethyl ester form like Vaxipa, 
uh, or in, uh, Epinova is the other uh, form. Well, you know, I think Epinova was the carboxylic, carboxylic acid. acid. So that's not the one that I would typically go for. But EPA ethyl ester would be probably the way that I would go if I felt somebody, you know, would be a candidate in this kind of a situation. Yeah. And you'd want some more data. You'd want some more yeah. data on the Epinova because it's like, yeah. what did this do? Yeah. Right, right. And and contrasting again, as you said, the secondary prevention, people with existing heart disease compared to primary prevention, people who do not yet have existing heart disease, I have a harder time making strong recommendations for, for any kind of fish oil in that situation, particularly compared with more aggressive management of their existing risk factors. So things we've talked about like blood pressure, like blood sugar, like their blood lipids, like checking a LP little a, that kind of stuff that we've talked about recently and, and really more aggressively managing those things. And then trying to get a serving or two of fatty fish in the diet per week would be much stronger recommendations for me than taking um, any kind of fish oil in those situations. Because if it is, again, all all these interventions are going to have a smaller benefit in a primary prevention situation, a smaller benefit for people who do not already have existing disease, who are not already at high risk. And so if you have a smaller to no potential benefit somewhere in that range, and there is existing risk, for example, of, of you know, precipitating atrial fibrillation, for example, which is going to either require additional medical interventions to get you out of atrial fibrillation, or if that doesn't work, then you're stuck taking blood thinners for the rest of your life and potentially bleeding and things like that. Like I see potential downside here it, that may exceed the potential upside for people who are in a low heart disease risk situation. Um, and so again, like for prep for, if you do not already have heart disease, I would focus on whether it be like the health priorities on our website or the essential eight that we talked about last time, like as much as you can on those things, uh, uh, much more than I would on taking any kind of over the counter fish oil or using the old fish oil calculators or something like that. Cause I would not want to see some of those potential downside downsides of, you know, AFib and blood, blood thinner and GI bleeding and things like that, that unfortunately are not exaggerated. Like I see that every single time I'm in the hospital, GI bleeds, you know, gastrointestinal bleeding due to being on blood thinners, which may be preventing a stroke, which will take, but Hey, you, you know, you'd rather not get hospitalized and need to, <laughs> you know, undergo a endoscopy, colonoscopy, get clips done, get blood transfusions, all that kind of stuff. So not trying to blow the risk out of proportion here nope. to like verify people, but it's just like, if this risk is real and the potential for benefit is very, is, is much lower, um, and you have higher kind of like yield or like more potent things that you can work on. That is where I would logically devote my attention first and foremost. Yeah. And I mean, this is all reflected in the 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines for Americans uh, with respect to uh, the dietary pattern, like a healthy dietary pattern consists of nutrient dense forms of foods and beverages, including seafood in the recommended amounts and within calorie limits that support uh, health and helps minimize the risk of diet related chronic diseases, such as cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes and obesity. So they're actually recommending that people eat fish on a regular basis, uh, even if they're, uh, pregnant or women who might become pregnant. Um, the recommendation to consume eight or more ounces per week of seafood, uh, is for the total package of nutrients that the seafood provides. So that's more of this sort of food matrix effect. So the actual food is, a, is a, the sum is greater than the parts. Uh, that includes its EPA and DHA content and other sort of micronutrients and, and minerals and whatnot. Um, some seafood choices have higher amounts of EPA and DHA, uh, you know, should be included. So those things would uh, be like salmon, anchovies, sardines, Pacific oysters, and trout. Uh, those also tend to be lower in methylmercury. Um, tilapia, shrimp, cat, uh, catfish and crab and flounder, uh, also would fit into that uh, sort of category, um, of note. Cause people are gonna be like, well, what about grass fed beef? That's got a higher omega three, uh, fatty acid content. Well, that is true when you compare it to grain fed, uh, 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 cattle. However, it's way lower 
than fish, way lower. So for reference, a three ounce serving of grass fed beef has about 0.015 grams of omega-3 fatty acids, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture's National Nutrient Database, whereas a three ounce serving of salmon has about 0.6 grams. Uh, I'm no mathematician, but that is way higher. So if you were like, I'm eating grass fed beef for the omega-3 content, it's like, do you pee in the ocean a lot? Like what's the deal? Like you're just <laughs> to, to raise the tide level. Like it's just not, you're not doing anything there. So um, not that I have a thing against grass fed beef. I just wouldn't necessarily eat it for its omega-3 content. I would stick to fish. And if you don't eat fish, um, I don't know that I would recommend a supplement outside of the incidences that we uh, already, already discussed. So, yeah. And, and I think that it's also as an aside worth mentioning here, because the, the vegan question is going to come up as far as supplementation of like algal, based mm -hmm. ALA, ALA supplementation. And I do not think that we have enough data at the moment to convincingly say that you stand to get the same degree or magnitude of benefits from ALA, because that relies on an assumption that by taking that ALA, your body will very efficiently convert it into one of these other forms like EPA and DHA. And mm -hmm. I am unconvinced that that is a thing that we can rely on that will happen or that we will see the same magnitude of benefit from, from ALA supplementation. So if you're in that vegan situation, like you can try it, but I, at the moment, am reluctant to say that you stand to get the same benefit as you would from some of these other things. If you were in a situation that, you know, needed it anyway, you know what I mean? Every time that you say the word reluctant, I think of that cake song going the distance reluctantly crouched at the starting line <laughs> engines thumping and pumping and top. Yeah. I just feel like you're about to dive in the pool or like I'm about to go race like one of the two, but we're reluctantly yeah. <laughs> on the starting line. Okay. That's a wrap on episode 193 for all of the resources that we talked about. Check out the link in the description below. Uh, we've got the case report. We've got the atrial fibrillation connection, how to measure omega-3 levels. All of the trials that we cited uh, or discussed are are in there as well. Uh, and additional information. If you want to come check us out at one of our live seminars, we've got a link to that as well. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. Big shout out to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me once again. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. I will catch you here next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.